It's good to be here worshiping the Lord together this morning. And just thinking upon what it is that we learned last week, we're in Romans chapter 8. We covered verse 1 last week, and we're going to be covering verses 2, 3, and 4 today. And just continuing to think upon what a, what a wonderful news it is for us to not be condemned. I mean, really, is there any greater news? Is there any better news than not being condemned because we're in Christ? Like, does it get any better than that at all? I'm sure that you being convinced that you're not condemned because you're in Christ makes you want to go live a life of sin and debauchery, doesn't it? I mean, this is, um, I think this is one of the things that as, pe- as, as human beings we're so, we're so afraid of. God freely offers us the gift of salvation by his grace. And we will, we will present that and we will preach that to a degree, but then we want to come in and we want to b- come behind and we want to pack on all these little things that, yeah, you're saved by grace, but then you know, but you got to go to church and then you got to give your money and you got to show up on Wednesday night and you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to do that. And because we are a people that we, we love merit, we want to attach our contribution in some way, shape, or form um, to anything that we do. And so we do this oftentimes with the gospel, because we're so afraid that if we preach a gospel of free grace to people, that they're going to take it and they're going to go, sweet, I've got unending forgiveness for the rest of my days. I'm just going to go sin away and live how I want to live. And we're afraid of people thinking that way. What we see in the text is that when this God, the Spirit of God uses the free gift of God's grace and forgiveness in the gospel, to bring people into Christ. And when people are brought into Christ genuinely by the work of the Spirit, he changes them to such a degree where the free grace is not something that you want to abuse. It's something that then motivates you to want to live for the glory of God. So what we're doing, we're actually shooting ourselves in the foot when we say, here, here's here's this offer. How does unending forgiveness for the rest of your days sound to you. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Good. You can have unending forgiveness by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone for the rest of your days if you would believe in him and then do this and do this and do this. Is that the gospel? No. Do you see what we do? We're so afraid of the free gift of the grace of, God, of the gospel, and we love human merit so much that we attach all these other things to it instead of just saying, this is what the gospel is. What, what is it that we've seen in Romans? People are justified by faith. And? No, there's like a period at the end of that sentence. People are justified by faith alone in Christ. That's the free gift of God's grace to them. Now, will they, be ch- built, will they be changed if they're brought into Christ by the work of the Spirit? Will they be changed? Oh, absolutely. If it's truly him that has brought them in, they will want to live a life honoring to him, which looks like what? Practically, yeah, it looks like I want to go to church. I want to have fellowship. I want to support the kingdom of God ministry work. Those things are, those things are the fruit of the gospel. 
but they're not the root. You never get in to Christ by doing those things. You do those things because you are in Christ by the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God uses the gospel of God's grace to bring people into Christ. And that's what it is that we see today in our passage. Um, For at least the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about the recreational work, the Spirit of God in, in someone's life that comes to know Christ. And we're going to be doing this through the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at this recreational work from several different um, angles or several different, several different components, if you, if you will. Um, today we're going to be looking at the recreation, the recreation work of the Spirit in a person's life forensically or legally or judicially or, or covenantally. You can use those, those terms to describe the, the, the spiritual reality that takes place in a person's life and their relationship with God um, when they come to know Christ. And it's done so first, as we see in our text today, in, in, a, in, your, in your legal standing with God. He declares you innocent, not guilty. You're no longer under sin. You're no longer under the law. He's, he, right? he's, he's transferred you, Colossians 1 will say, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We've seen this be really becoming clear all the way back in Romans chapter 5. You're either, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're, in one, you're under one of these two federal heads, one of these two covenantal heads. And, and, and who, whatever head you're under is going to determine and inform the way that you live your life. And the Spirit of God recreates you in a sense where he takes you out of Adam, puts you in Christ. And that's done in a, in a legal sense, in a, in a covenantal sense. And that's what we see today. And we're going to see that there are other aspects to it, a very, a very relational sense a very eternal sense, a very practical sense as we continue to work through the book of Romans. But for what it is that we see today, we notice that we are recreated by the Spirit of God in a, in a legal or covenantal way with him. So let's read Romans chapter 8. I'm going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 4. And then I want to draw our, our attention to a few things in particular <clears throat> from the text. Beginning in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see that, um, that, that, that phrase there in verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law. Now God's standard is perfection. His standard of righteousness is his own Righteousness. And, and spiritually, legally, covenantally, that is what we get. We are recreated by the Spirit of God, and that's we get the righteousness of Christ. There's this exchange where he, we take on his righteousness, and he takes on our sin upon himself. 
And what I want to draw our attention to today is three ways, three reasons, excuse me, why we are recreated um, covenantally in his sight. The first one is that we are recreated by the Spirit of God for freedom. We're going to see that in verse 2. We are recreated for freedom. Not only that, we are recreated through fulfillment. And you notice how Paul talks about the spirit, the role of the Spirit of God putting us in Christ. And then he immediately in verse 3 and 4, the first part of verse 4, makes a beeline to talk about the work of Christ. Because you can't just have recreation. God doesn't just, God doesn't just say you're forgiven. There has to be a work. There has to be a substitute in our place. And that's, that's, that's where Christ is. That's where he lives. That's, where we, that's why we rejoice in the work of the Son on our behalf. It's through fulfillment. Somebody had to work. Christ has worked for us. And then thirdly, for faithfulness. We've been recreated for faithfulness. This is what we see in the latter part of verse 4 who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit of God recreates people to, to walk by the Spirit. So let's look first at verse 2, recreated for freedom. We need to see, we need to understand and be reminded of that man's spiritual condition is the most important thing about them. A person's spiritual condition is the most important thing about them. Would you agree with that? I, I I hope so, because there are a lot of things that can happen in this life. Things come and go. Things are well. Things are bad. Things, people are healthy. People are sick. The, right? Life like this is constantly shifting. But someone's spiritual condition, they're, they're either saved or they're unsaved. Like Those are the two options you have. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Either you're spending an eternity in joyful bliss and worship and celebrating and, and enjoying him or you're, enjoy, or you're in an eternity of hell, misery, suffering, and separation from him. Those are the two spiritual realities. That the, the spiritual condition of mankind is the most important thing about anybody. And what Paul would want us to know is spiritually, for, those, for, the, for the believer, there's no condemnation for you in Christ. He starts off with this wonderful news for us. On the heels of not being condemned because we are in Christ, we begin to see how and why. We're not condemned. We are in Christ. This is true for us because of the work of the Spirit. You see this in verse 2. Look at the connection. Think about the connection between verse 1 and verse 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's made this, this wonderful proclamation for or because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. You're free from condemnation. I mean, this is, this is the greatest news that anybody could ever have or to receive, to know that you are completely free. If you are in Christ, how good is it to know? I mean, just... Just stop for a moment and just think with me about this, this, like this simple but profound spiritual truth. As it is right now, as you sit in this chair, you never have to fear facing condemnation. You, like, you have that assurance. It is complete and it is done because of the work of Christ, which we'll get to. But that's, such, that's so encouraging. 
that's so wonderful to know that that's a spiritual truth and reality for me that cannot change. I don't ever have to, nothing, as he'll go on in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Oh, how he has a grip on his children and he will just not let go of them. That's such wonderful news. We have such great news to share with people. All, all how? Why? Because I was good? Because I did enough? I gave enough? I showed up enough? No. By faith. I believed. I trusted. I rested in the gospel message. And I get all of this in Christ. The spirit, and what, what, is, what is he called? The spirit of life. You have life in Christ. You see, how, see what I'm saying? Paul evaluates everything spiritually. The, the person's spiritual component is the most important thing about them. It doesn't matter physically, like where you are. Spiritually, you are alive because the Spirit of God has given you life. He, and He is, the Spirit of God has set you free. If you're in Christ, you are completely free from condemnation. You're completely free in Christ. I mean, this is wonderful news to know that you're never going to face. I mean, you're going to encounter life and people are going to judge you. People are going to pass judgments on you. And they're going to say all, things, all kinds of things about you. They're going to make all kinds of judgment calls about you. But you can always rest and know that in the eyes of God, the spirit of life has set you free from condemnation. Free, the law, the spirit of life, the law being the, the principle, the spiritual reality that he's talking about, this place. This relational reality that you have with God. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul, Romans chapter 8 is Paul's most extensive teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit anywhere. The, 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 word, the, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 21 times in chapter 8, Romans mentioned 11 other times total in the rest of the book. This is a, condon, uh, um, a condensing of the work of the Spirit. If you want a good, what we would call pneumatology, a study of the Holy Spirit, go to Romans 8 and see what it is that he talks about, what he teaches there. A few of the things that we've already seen regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 4, he's called the, Holy, the Spirit of Holiness. In chapter 2, verse 29, we know that by the Spirit, our hearts have been circumcised. In chapter 5, verse 5, it tells us that the Holy Spirit is the vessel of God's love that has been poured into our hearts. And in chapter 7, verse 6, he tells us that we, by the Holy Spirit, we um, live in a new way before him. Before he even gets to Romans chapter 8, talking about the recreational work of the Spirit of God in our lives, he's told us that this is the spirit of holiness. To really live is to live a life of holiness by the Holy Spirit. To really live is to have your heart circumcised by the Holy Spirit. To really live is to receive the love of God poured into your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. And to really live is to live in the new way that's worked in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so he, he's putting these pieces together. And so when we get to Romans chapter 8, he's going to completely nail, he's going to drive home the, the powerful and effective work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. I find it so interesting. We're going to be doing this, the Sunday school and the gifts of the Spirit. And I think when you talk, if you ask people, okay, I'm going to say a word to you. And you, first thing that pops into your mind, if I say the word Holy Spirit, I think for a lot of people, the, one of the first words is gifting, right? I mean, we, we like to think about the gifting of the Holy Spirit, and that's in the Scripture too. But what, we, what Paul is covering here is the, the foundational work of the Spirit of God in, in, in his working in bringing you into union, relational union with Christ, where he is yours and you are his. Everything else is just icing on the cake, man. Like whatever, other, whatever gifting of the Spirit you have outside of that, that's just icing on the cake. It's the union with Christ that you have, being brought into Christ. That's the real gift. That's the real blessing and work of the Holy Spirit. And he has set us free. He has, he has liberated us from the liability of being under the law. And he has set us free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit, as we have already seen, has broken the power of sin in a believer's life and thus freed us from the penalty of sin, which is death. You, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are born again. You are free from condemnation and you are free in Christ. And this is because, point number two, we have been recreated through fulfillment of what it is that Christ has done. He brings us back to the basis of our freedom, our recreation. The Spirit doesn't simply set us free, but must account for the work of Christ. I'll never forget one time after church one Sunday, a guy came up to me, this is years and years ago, and he goes, I don't understand. I, I understand like I'm a sinner and that God forgives my sin, but I don't understand why, why did Jesus have to die? Why doesn't, like, if God is God, why can't he just say, you're a sinner and I forgive you? Go in peace. And what he was missing was that there has to, sin has to be paid for. God doesn't just say, I forgive you, go in peace. Like, sin, there has to be a payment made. Someone has got to pay for, you, for sin, and it's either going to be you, or in the case of the believer, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's so remarkable about this, what it is that he goes on to say here. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of death, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own Son. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. There, there is a standard of righteousness and perfection. God does not change that standard. It is the same, always. And it's perfection. It's, it's his own righteousness is his standard. We, we know this. But there has to be a payment made. Christ has made that payment. And what the Spirit of God does is, is he makes that payment of Christ good on your behalf and upon mine. He takes the work of the Son. What is it that we see in this text? We see the redemptive power and plan of the triune God working salvation for you and for me. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
all of them working together to accomplish our salvation. He says in verse 3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. For what the law could not do, your translation might read, for what the law could not do and that it was weak in the flesh, God did. The emphasis is upon the insufficiency and the weakness of the law and the superior sufficiency of the work of Christ. The law, what, was, what the law could not do and that it was weak in the flesh, God did. The law was powerless. It was, it was unable, impossible. That's how the law is described here. The law, it, it was impossible, unable, powerless to actually save anybody. And yet, it was still divinely given to us by God. God gave us something that could never save us in the law. In the, in the flesh, it sees the law and, and, it, and it wants to, to twist the law and mutilate the law for our own, like to, to measure our own merit and our own goodness. The law, God gave us something he, and he knew that this is, what, this is what he planned for it to do. He gave us a law that could not save us. He gave us a law that was going to excite my sin and was going to expose my sin. We've seen this already in Romans. Paul would say in, in Galatians 3.24 that it was, our, it was our tutor, our guardian, until Christ came. In our flesh, and our fallenness, the law could not save us. It was meant to expose our sinfulness so that we might turn away from our own works, our own deeds, our own merits, our own attempts to make ourselves righteous with God, to turn away completely from that, and to ask for a mediator like they did in um, Exodus chapter 20. He gives them the, the Ten Commandments, and they cry out, we cannot approach you. Send Moses to intercede. Moses is a picture of what Christ does. He mediates. He intercedes for us. He's the one that keeps the perfect standard of the law, the righteous requirements of the law, as we see in Romans here. God has done. You see how, and this is the wonderful thing. This is the incredible thing. It's God's doing. God sends the law at one point in time for its purposes, and then God sends his son at another point in time to fulfill his purpose. And what was his purpose? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 100% completely like you and I in the flesh outside of having a sinful nature. He sends his son in our form. Genesis tells us that mankind is created in the image of God, right? But God doesn't have a physical body. God is spirit. So in what way is mankind created in the image of God primarily, spiritually? He gives us a body of which the Spirit dwells within. He creates us in His image spiritually, gives us a physical body, and then He sends His Son in our image to accomplish what we cannot accomplish. 
And what he does is he sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, just like us, completely like us, for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. He made a judgment. You do not stand condemned because he condemned sin for you. He worked that. He accomplished that on your behalf and mine. He, he, was, he not, was he not tried? Was he not tested? Did he not have a work to accomplish? What was he doing when the, who led him? What does the text tell us? The Holy Spirit leads Jesus, the Son, into the desert to be tempted. And this is not just some, oh, you know, devil and Jesus are out in the wilderness and the devil's trying to get him and poke at him. No, this is, this is the trial. This is the work where where Adam failed in the midst of a wonderful lush garden of which he was completely equipped to succeed and fails, Christ is out in the wilderness with nothing and he succeeds. He is accomplishing a work. He is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to face a temptation to accomplish a work, to do something to condemn sin in the flesh. And he emerges from that wilderness. How? Victorious. He emerges from the, from the wilderness victorious. Why? What is he doing? He's accomplishing redemption. He's working. He, he's, he, he is providing for us what God demands from us on our behalf. And what he does is he condemns my sin in triumphing over it and and judging it. And so now you and I, if we are in Christ, no longer have to face the judgment of sin and death because he's already condemned it in us and for us on our behalf. He's won. Where we, as mankind, are weak, he emerges strong. In this, we see the strength of Christ for us. We sing the song, The Love of God, and one of my favorite lines is, He gave His Son to win. Christ accomplishes a work and He wins on our behalf. This is is the reason why we can be secure in our salvation. This is why salvation cannot be lost. This is why you cannot go from being in Adam to Christ to being back in Adam. Because it's not based upon your ability to go from Adam to Christ to begin with. It's based upon the work of Christ. And if you're in Christ and he's worked on your behalf, the work is accomplished and it's finished. It, it, is, it is finished. And you are free from condemnation because the Spirit of God has brought you and placed you into Christ. And God who gave his Son to win has indeed won. And we see why. Christ is fulfilling for us. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God doesn't lower his standard. It's not like he, he looks upon the fall and goes, oh man, that was, I, I probably made it a little too hard on them. Let me, let me lower my standard a little bit. 
God's standard of perfection remains immovable, unchanging, unwavering. And it's perfection, his, his own righteousness. Rather than changing it, lowering it, altering it, he sends his son to fulfill it on our behalf. If Christ has one sinful thought, one sinful word, one sinful deed, failure, you and I are in our sin. But because he worked righteousness perfectly and completely, you and I have a strong basis for this faith in which we rejoice in him. What's incredible about it is that this, this covenantal spiritual reality that takes place between me and God because of the work of the Spirit, the, the fulfillment of the work of the Son, all be, both being sent by the Father, it, it, cre- it does this thing with me and God legally, judicially, covenantally, but also very practically. This is not just like doctrine and theology to understand because we see, as we see in our third point, he fulfilled the law in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He's provided for us all that it is that we need. I think of the sufficiency of the work of the Son. Matthew chapter 22, we see a parable of the wedding feast. And I think this illustrates well the necessity of the work of Christ on our behalf and leads us into the practical reality and change that takes place within the believer. Jesus would tell a a parable in Matthew chapter 22 of the wedding feast. And the parable, if you're following along, Matthew 22 starts off like this. Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they, they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite them to the wedding feast, as many as you find." And as those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they had found, both bad and good, to the wedding, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. What happens? But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Did you know that at that time, if you were invited to a wedding feast, there were, there were wedding robes that were required of you 
to attend the feast. And if you didn't have one, you would show up at the wedding. If you weren't wet wearing the proper wedding garment, they would provi- the host would provide a garment for you, a robe, a wedding robe for you to wear to show that you belonged at the wedding feast. This man essentially has been invited and he walks into the place where the host has the wedding garments and they say, sir, you need a wedding garment in order to come to the wedding feast. And he says, no, thank you. My clothes are good enough. What is he doing? This is, this is a picture of, uh, of him relying upon his own works, his own goodness. No, thank you. I will come to the wedding feast on my own, wearing my own clothing. Thank you very much. And in he saunters in and takes his place at the table. And the host comes out and he's looking around at all the people at the wedding feast. And he sees this man. Everyone's wearing robes. Either their own, either the robes that they brought with them or the robes that were given to them. Probably, most likely, they were all people that had robes given to them because of where they came from. And he sees this man. Everyone's wearing these wedding robes. And he sees this man. He's not wearing one. How did he get in here? Sir, where's your wedding robe? Speechless. Take this man and throw him out. Bind him, hand and foot. He has no place at the wedding feast. He refused the wedding robes the robes of righteousness that are required to be at the wedding feast. This is what Christ does in fulfilling the law on our behalf. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us the wedding robe. He invites us. I mean, think about how comprehensive and complete the work is of Christ on our behalf. It's his wedding, and he plans it. And he puts it all together and he accomplishes it. He even gives you the attire that you need to be there. He's prepared the feast. He's pre- everything is done by him. All you got to do is come and receive the garment of righteousness to be there. Christ has fulfilled everything that is required of you to come to the wedding feast. All you must do, this is the gospel. Will you receive the robe of righteousness? That's re- I, here, I'm, I'm, I'm giving it to you. I'm trying to give it to you. Will you receive the robe of righteousness that God requires for you to wear in order to come to the wedding feast? Nah, that's cool. Appreciate it. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna wear what I got on. This is what people do when they refuse Christ has presented to them in the gospel. And what was going to happen to them is what happens to this man in this parable. How many people do you think flood into churches at this hour? How many people do you think in this town alone are flooding into churches in this hour without the proper attire in the robes of righteousness because they think, I can come on my own. I'm pretty good. I'm certainly better than the person sitting next to me. I'm certainly better than the person sitting on the other side of the room or in the back of the room. It doesn't matter. God sees things spiritually. 
It doesn't, it doesn't matter how, how, how moral you are. It doesn't matter how you dress yourself up on the outside. I mean, we're going through 1 Samuel right now as a family in our family devotions. And you come to this great part, right, where, where, where David's going to be elected, you know, pronounced as being king. Saul has been dismissed. And he looks upon David and says, God does not look on the outside, but looks on the inside. David has this, this love for God. And how is it displayed and shown in his life? By the way that he lives. We just covered David and Goliath, um, not last night, Friday night. And just David's trust in God to deliver him. And how the believers are anchors this trust in God and who he is and what he's done, what he's capable of. That reality leads to what we see in our third point, a life of faithfulness. Recreated for faithfulness. Recreated for freedom. You have been recreated by fulfillment, through fulfillment of the work of the Son. And you have been recreated for faithfulness. I almost put fruitfulness. But the, the work of the Spirit brings the fruit out of our lives. What you and I are called to do is be faithful. Some are appointed to bear 30, some 60, some 100 times. The fruitfulness in your life has been appointed and ordained by God. Now, that doesn't mean you can be lazy and doesn't mean you can just like float down the lazy river of life spiritually because God's going to bring out my life whatever he wants to bring out. He calls us to be faithful, and he will bring the fruit out of it. We have been recreated for faithfulness, to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The creation spirit in Genesis 1 is the recreation spirit in, in Romans chapter 8. As he speaks things into existence in Genesis chapter 1 so that they might exist and function as God has ordained them to, so he recreates and speaks into existence into the heart of the life of the sinner and recreates them so that they might walk by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is self-authenticating. He is self-authenticating. He saves a sinner, and then he self-authenticates his presence and, and, and dwelling within the sinner by the sinner then walking in the Spirit, which is what he'll get into later on in Romans chapter 8. The necessity, the, the, the unavoidable conclusion is that someone who's born again by the Spirit of God is going to walk by the Spirit. And it doesn't mean that like we're not called to put in effort and work. We'll see that next week, how we are called to. But the Spirit of God is, is self-authenticating. He proves himself. I think of um, 2 Timothy 2, 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this soul. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. 
being known by the God, being known by God and having the Holy Spirit will, will prove itself in your life by your desire to depart, to depart from iniquity. Now, again, not perfectly, not consistently all the time, right? I mean, we, we need to pair this with the fact of that Rome, we saw in Romans 6, like, sin will not have dominion over us, but it does desire to reign. So it will never be out, we, we will never be under sin's dominion again, but sin's desire is to reign. And, and oh, how if the believer is, is lazy and blind in those areas, sin can come in and reign in their life in very real and practical ways. And that's why there is work required on behalf of the believer to walk by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is always, always constantly pushing you, encouraging you, preparing you to work that way. But then you have to, we, we then have to agree with the Spirit on what is good. There comes real points in my everyday life where I know the right thing to do, what the right thing to do is, because the Spirit of God tells me through the Word of God what is right, but man, it ain't, that's not what I feel like doing. And in that moment, I have to make the decision to walk by the Spirit in obedience and trust in Him, or am I going to live life on my terms? To walk faithfully is what we are recreated to do. To walk faithfully. Faithful using the gifts faithful using our days, faithful using everything that God has given to us for his glory and for the good of those who are around us. I think a, a good way of putting it is this. Um, German reformer Wolfgang Musculus said this, it's not because of some new quality worked in us by the grace of the Holy Spirit that we are beyond condemnation, but on account of the grace of God alone, which we lay hold of by faith in Christ. We are saved because we are in Christ. The death of Christ is what saves us. Nevertheless, it is still true that those who are in Christ do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But they are not saved by doing so. Rather, they are led by the Spirit of God because they are saved by the grace of Christ. In other words, you, you, don't do, you, you don't do good things to get into Christ. You are doing good things and walking by the Spirit because you are already in Christ. And, and so then I, I think about this and I bring this all together and I think about ways in which what the text actually, like how is it going to actually impact me and apply to my life? And I think about this idea that I'm, I'm, I'm free. I am free in Christ to live for him. I am free in Christ to live sacrificially because I can't lose, I can never lose the greatest thing I have. I am free, completely free to love other people without expecting anything in return. I'm free to do that. I'm free to suffer well. I'm free to not have my circumstances and my situations around me in life determine my joy, my comfort, my peace. I'm free from that. Isn't that wonderful? 
Isn't it wonderful to know that life could absolutely be crumbling? Everything around you is crumbling away. And you can say, rejoice in the Lord always. How can you genuinely rejoice? Because you're free to do so. Because you're not condemned. Because you're walking by the Spirit. He has set our eyes. I, I'm free to set my eyes upon a kingdom, as uh, Hebrews 12 would say, that cannot be shaken. I'm free to do that. I don't care. I, I'm free from caring what people say or think that as a Christian, I live life with, for a particular purpose and a particular reason day in and day out. I'm free from that. Because I've been so gripped by the reality of the kingdom of God and his righteousness and his goodness and Christ being for me. I'm free to live in a way uh, free from all of these things in life because I know there is a chair at the table at the wedding feast that has my name on it. And I'm going to sit at that table. and I'm going to sit in that chair and I'm going to partake of the wedding feast with the Lord Jesus Christ. That sets me free to spend my days in this life that he's given to me, that he's allotted to me, however many they may be, for his glory and for the good of those who are around us. And I pray and I hope that that, grip, that reality grips your heart as well. You have been recreated to live that way. As we partake, prepare to partake of communion together, you know, again, our eyes are drawn specifically to the work of Christ on our behalf. You're, you're, we're partaking of a meal knowing that we partake of it because he has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. He did so joyfully, willingly, sacrificially. And so this is a wonderful privilege for us. What does he ask us to do at this time? Remember him. Remember the strong and sufficient Christ who has worked your salvation out on your behalf and has given it to you and how his desires for us to be with him. So if you're visiting here today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, we do invite for you to partake of this communion time with us. If you don't, and you're, you're still wearing your garments, I'm urging you to strongly consider the, the failure that awaits you in doing so. He offers the robes of righteousness. All you have to do is receive, believe, and trust in him. So the elements are on the back table. You can get those and return back to your chair for a time of prayer and meditation, and we'll partake of the communion elements together shortly.